Any questions, either for me or for Ajahn Amma? It appears that it's kind of. Um, it appears that whatever is spoken is already tr- could be true, true yet already not true because it's spoken. Um, uh, that there is a there is a because there is because there is. The, the, the truth cannot be, um, there is no truth, or there is no not truth. There is no tanmayata, and there is no atanmayata. It appears that none of that is. Yeah. And so there is, there is it, it is, like, but it is not. Can we play with that a little bit? <laughs> sure. So what becomes evident then? There's nothing you can hold. There right. is nothing. Right. And if you let go of that nothing too. Still there's nothing. <laughs> so, so the next question would be, who says? <laughs> No one. Uh, no one's the flip side of someone, isn't it? You know, if you say no one, you say someone. When you say no one, you say someone. Guaranteed. You can be sure of that. So that we're still caught up in no one or someone. There's a Japanese philosopher who came to the Maui Zendo once. And, you know, in Zen, we don't uh, really esteem philosophers very much. Uh, but um, I-, I love philosophy. I and, uh, and he was remarkable. His name was Masao Abe. He actually has a, has a good insight, a Zen insight. And uh, he said a line, uh, told us a line that has stayed with me for years. He said, we we're talking about shunyata and no self, which we can talk about ad nauseum, can't we? I mean, that's why we, I want to play a little bit with it. If it's all right with you. Um, he said, nothing is not something called nothing. <laughs> What's beneath the cloak? <laughs> that's actually a koan. What's beneath your kesa? What's beneath? That's, that's actually a zen koan. Yeah, what's beneath the, the kesa? The, your own robe, the implication is, is who is this one? Yeah, and what's beneath your dualisms? Good question. Thank you. I missed that line. What was that? Oh, Masao Abe. I'm not going to take credit for that one. Okay. Uh, that's um, uh, nothing is not something called nothing. <laughs> Out of the mouth of a philosopher, we have what we call in Zen a turning word. Every once in a while, you'll find these turning words that sort of help you completely shift on your axis. 
It did that for me. Other questions? Comments? Well, um, this came into my mind during, during Ajahn Amaro's talk and but you also alluded to this, I think, in a certain way. Um, there, there, there's nothing, there's no place and there's, and there's nothing that you can pin down. But as we seem to be very interested in this as human beings, this no place. And so one can say it's par- you, know, you can't talk about it or untalk about or paradoxical in language. But in recent years, Western researchers have become very interested in this phenomenon of what is it that's going on in the mind, including looking at all the senses and, you know, and so there's a whole range. And I've just been reading about it lately and I of between from people that are looking at what's what 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 fires wires so they're looking at electrical impulses in the mind to two more philosophical things so i'm just wondering if either one of you or both had any interest in this and if you had any thing you wanted to say about it i know it's a little maybe off of (laughs) subject but i think i think it's it's very interesting and i'll go first and then i don't know i'd love to hear from you um I'm very interested in it, and I've studied a little bit about uh, interpersonal neurobiology and how we affect each other underneath the threshold of consciousness. Um, the brain research has gone in a number of different directions, but let me be provocative. And let me just, having said that, that I'm very interested in it, they will never find it. <laughs> Never. It can only be lived. And each of us has to spring free and bring forth this no place in our own place. In our own place and time. Yeah, I also paid a little bit of attention to this. Um, uh, uh, <coughs> um, one one. Uh, essay I was reading about it was uh, something of um, where if the uh, fundamentalist Christians have sort of taken on the scientific realm to qualify their their views by uh, the, adopting the idea of intelligent design it's sort of the, <coughs> the going in the other directions or okay well let's look for the, uh, the neurological basis for the existence of God and uh, finding God in the neurons uh, and that is religious experience a, 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 um, an emergent property of neurological activity? Is it just basically, or is you know the the great whatever it is just simply a, a result of an effect of neurochemistry? So, so that's an interesting uh, debate, and um, and so that. Uh, but I would agree uh, in many respects that. They'll, they'll never find it. In, in so far as that people, I mean, there's amazing things that people can do with the chemistry and the, the mapping of, of mental activity, uh, you know, in terms of electricity, you know, the movements of, of um, currents through the different parts of the brain with I mean, staggering accuracy. 
and pinpointing tiny, tiny areas of, of the brain and, and watching particular reactions and particular relationships and then tracking down, the, the, okay, this is the area of the brain that is uh, the religious experience patch. And if you zap it, you know, with the right amount of um, charge at the end and the right cluster of cells, then boom, you get a religious experience. Um, but in a, in a similar way, it's the, the whole thing, even though I don't deny that, that they're be able to witness and, and replicate those, those effects, and scientifically it's pretty tight, there's still this, um, in a way, uh, a reductionist view, and that seeing that the, the consciousness is an emergent property of the um, biochemistry and the, the uh, physiology of the brain, but never ever um, uh, going anywhere near the idea that um, of the fundamental non-materiality of mind, that actually the mind doesn't have an intrinsic relationship with with uh, the body. And I mean, it's always seen as oh, no, it's a, 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 the consciousness is an, is an effect, is an emergent property of what the body does. But the idea of uh, you know, mind as maybe this is being sort of going counter to what uh, Joe was saying about yes. the, uh, interpen- the intrinsic interpenetration of, of, of form and, and uh, emptiness or whatever, is that uh, the whole quality of, uh, of your mind as having nothing whatsoever to do with, with the body or the material world or the conditioned realm. That it's, uh, that, that's never touched. That's never um, broached. Or hasn't been so far. It's always seen as Oh no! It's a, it's a, an effect, uh, uh, like a religious experience is an effect of what the body is doing. But having a religious experience without a body being involved, ooh, well, they don't want to go there. And the, the researchers don't, but there are also philosophers who, who do hold yeah, this position. Yeah, yeah, I was talking more about the researchers here. Yeah. Anyway, which, what, what do the philosophers uh, say in this? Uh, John Searle, for example. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> John Searle is a philosopher who says exactly that there's um, what you two have been pointing to, that there, um, that there, that there is an aspect of mind that is, that is outside you know, this reductionist or cause and effect relationship yeah. that most researchers, and sometimes um, philosophers use a special term for it, which also researchers use, so it gets confusing qualia mm-hmm. um, right. you know that you you have this going on and then people will make the point philosophers that I've read that which also fits in with a, a Buddhist way of looking at the world as I understand it is that there's so much going on there, there are so many contingent factors in the conditioned world that even if you have this you can trace the electrical you can't predict what Responses where the brain will go, mm-hmm. or where the where the mind will go, where the mm-hmm. mind, or, or, or actually where the whole human, <laughs> in a Zen way, where the whole human being will go to respond to whatever comes up. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because yeah, I tend to uh, have more of a uh, a, a worldview of the uh, 
it's almost like the the material world is more like an emergent property of the of the transcendent the other way around yeah yeah and and we can play with this and i think yeah. it's fun to play with this and maybe maybe we could also say that it's it can't be ca- captured by materiality or corpora corpora corporeality mm. can't be captured by either one, one uh, th- quote I thought I'd, I'd offer, actually in relationship to the last thing you were saying about, uh, and, and relating to uh, this uh, woman's um, question, was uh, a quote from uh, John Cage, who was more out of the Zen school, who's the, the, the uh, composer. And he wrote a book um, called Silence, predictably enough. <laughs> and um, uh, the, the opening passage from, from Silence goes... Um, if you let it, it supports itself. You don't have to. Each something is a celebration of the nothing which supports it. When you remove the world from your shoulders, you discover it doesn't drop. <laughs> where, where is the responsibility? It's a very lovely way of expressing it. Speaking of turning words. Beautiful quote. I'm going to pick up on the last line because that's such an important question. Where is the responsibility? Um, And and tie it in a little bit to the neurobiology. Uh, Thank you. That's just a beautiful quote. Um, One of the elements of the recent research... uh, uh, on interpersonal neurobiology, let's just say how we impact one another, actually, I think, is very helpful to put flesh on the bones of our, of our both Mahayana and Theravadan-based teachings. Uh, the Mahayana being the jeweled net of Indra. I don't know, do you know the jeweled net of Indra, this, this metaphor? I, I'll tell you about it. And, and uh, on the Theravadan side, the, uh, the cause and effect. How does cause and effect happen is very important, right? That's where the responsibility comes in. That's what I heard Ajahn Amro saying earlier. I mean, if you're really aware, then there's some measure of choice, however tiny, some critical measure of choice. Where is the responsibility? You know, somebody could hear that John Cage poem and take it the wrong way and say, where is the responsibility? I can do anything I want. In Zen, we call that Buji Zen. False, false. Eh? So that's certainly not the case. But then, what I find so interesting about the interpersonal neurobiology is that it really lays out how we are impacting one another emotionally from the first time we meet. Parts of my brain are firing with parts of your brain are communicating directly. And, you know, you can actually experience some of the emotions I'm feeling. I can actually experience some of the things that you're feeling. And Freud, before he got sidetracked, actually knew this. He had this idea of um, uh, each of us has a transmitter and a receiver. And we can actually know unconsciously what one another. And, and he explored thought transfer and that sort of hocus pocus stuff. But we can know unconsciously our states of mind are deep bodily-based states of being, states of mind, and emotional experience. And not only can we, we do immediately. It's contagious. So knowing that, I think, is very, very interesting because um, there's a 
story. Well, it gets a story leads to a story and it's a story, mm-hmm. but but this is a good story, and he's he's a good guy. So um, this is a story with the Dalai Lama uh, up at uh, Spirit Rock, and I'm, I'm sure you were there at that um, at that meeting a few years ago, Ajahn Amro. And uh, somebody asked him a question, and um, the question was based in confusion and, and, and what should I do and self-doubt and, and, and deep questioning about what's the path. And he's Dalai Lama sort of uh, rocked side to side as he sometimes does in this wonderful way. And his, his head was going like this. And you could really hear him sort of taking in the question. And he says, you know, when I'm not sure about something, I check my motivation. And if my motivation is clear, that's not afflictive, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. <laughs> and I thought, that's just a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> phrase. And it was actually a wonderful turning word for this very advanced student, shall we say. He was actually a teacher. But then he said the next thing. He said, and if I check my motivation and it's afflictive, then I need to work on myself. And I thought, what a wonderful, fresh kind of teaching. And something very simple dawned on me at that time. And that was, it should be as easy as that. As using conscious introspection to shine the light on my motivations. And then I become aware if it's afflictive or wholesome. I think the way that it actually happens is that we're impacting one another for the better and for the worse at all moments. So interpersonal neurobiology becomes important because I can't really check my motivation consciously as completely as I would like to. You know, and I, therefore, I don't think that the classic Buddhist path of purification of motivation, which I actually believe in, I really think it's a wonderful teaching, even though I'm a Zen person. This is a classical Buddhist teaching. I I think it needs something from interpersonal neurobiology and and psychology in the sense that sometimes I don't know my motivation, even if I consciously reflect on it, until I see my impact on somebody else. And if I have this theoretical framework that I am impacting, we are impacting one another, then this will help me be open to how we are impacting one another. And even when I'm not aware of any afflictive or unwholesome emotion, somebody else may be picking up on something from me. So this teaching actually, I think, helps us become more aware of our motivation, purify our motivation, uh, and, uh, and help all beings. Let's just see if anybody else has, who hasn't asked the question. Anybody else? Comment, question, please. Uh, you, made, you made several comments in your talk about um, people you knew whose, so we say their actions were, were not very, as we say, terrible, skillful. I think we know the same people. <laughs> to, to I've seen in certain sense senses very destructive behavior which caused a lot of confusion in people doubt the practice doubt the goodness of the practice 
where along, and, and a lot of it in the Theravada tradition is, is really steeped in, in um, it's part of the Eightfold Path, is, is, is um, certain precepts you just don't do because it's going to get you in trouble. Where along the way did Zen drop that, and why did it drop it? I'm a poor historian of Buddhism. You know, in, in Zen, we, we, we just practiced, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and it was only, I'd say, 10 to 12 years ago that I started reading about Buddhism and, you know, met a few Vipassana teachers. Oh, well, I also studied with Thich Nhat Hanh, so got a little bit of Vietnamese Theravon. But uh, it's only the last 10 years I've started to learn that there's a history to Buddhism, there's a philosophy and a psychology to Buddhism. And I... I'm like a boy in the candy shop. You know, I just think it's beautiful stuff. That's why I love uh, Ajahn Amro and uh, his work and, uh, and so on. Um, so I couldn't tell you historically uh, where they did drop it or where they didn't drop it. Or, you know, and and I, I don't know that that's actually that interesting to me uh, historically. But, but it is there. It's just that... Um, we place the precepts usually at the end of our koan study. We go over the precepts according to three different dimensions. We, we work on the 16 precepts and we have to personalize them. Also, when we take, uh, take Buddhist vows, we, uh, we also write poems for each precept. We study the precept. We, we, we try to uh, personalize it and describe, we, we make vows according to each of the 16 precepts. Um, so it's not that we don't do it, but I think there are certain features of Zen, which um, in a way, uh, it's, uh, it's radicalness, which unfortunately predispose to people falling through the cracks. And it's not just in Zen, it's certainly in, in some Tibetan traditions as well. You know, there's, I think one of, one of the teachers who, you know, spread AIDS, uh, you know, to his students, when, when finally, I, I heard the story, I don't like to spread rumors, but I heard the story. Uh, on his deathbed, he said, I actually thought I was exempt from the material world. Now, there's an example of, you, you better let in the material world, goddammit, you know. Um, uh, and the body, uh, even though even though Buddha nature is, is immaterial or cannot be captured by materiality or corporeality, you better realize that you fall under the law of karma. And I think in Zen, because it's radicalness, uh, and in Tibetan Buddhism too, which, which I think shares that feature in the Vajrayana, crazy wisdom and all of that business, uh, a, a lot uh, parades, uh, a, a lot of... Uh, dangerous things parade under the, and not just unskillful, but harmful things parade under the rubric of crazy wisdom. There are Zen ancestors, you know, who we've written about, and I think this happens more in the Tibetan tradition and the Zen tradition than in the Theravadan tradition, although I don't think Theravadans would be exempt from it. I think it's a human potentiality. But I also want to just add a little bit of a corrective and, um, you know, let, let he who hasn't sinned, you know, throw the first stone. I don't think we should be moralistic about it. Um, and um, there but for the grace of God go I. Uh, why haven't I had that kind of misconduct? I, I don't know. It just is important to me 
to embody the teachings that prajna, shila, and dhyana interpenetrate. For me, that's my ideal. If they're not working together, I'm not practicing. So, um, but could I? Of course I could. Does it arise like uh, the wonderful story Ajahn Amaro talked about with uh, Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedha, was it? Um, you know, uh, Ajahn Chah just wonderfully poking and poking at the, at the attachment, you know. Uh, can, you, can you recognize the, what's going on in the moment and, and make skillful choices based, based on mutual benefit? See, I think this is something that's sometimes missing, that there's, there's self-centered motivation creeps in under the rubric of Zen enlightenment. And we're not aware of it. That's why the interpersonal biological framework is so important to know and to ask the other person. You know, if, if you experience me in a certain way, I need to take that really seriously. Um, and just, uh, it's a good corrective for the hubris that's, that sets in. I don't know if that responds to your question. Would you like to say anything about that? Um, you know, maybe one or two things. Um, just historically, uh, um, again, I, I'm not uh, that well informed. It's not really my tradition, but I, I do know that um, what happened was that uh, <clears throat> when Dogen, uh, and I believe it was even prior to Dogen, but he was certainly something that happened with him was that um, just as today in Buddhist countries, in order to be a a preceptor to, to conduct ordinations, you have to have the sort of imprimatur from the religious authorities. Uh, when Dogen came back from China, um, came back to Japan, he didn't have the authority, he wasn't given the authority to be a preceptor to ordain other monks or nuns. And so um, what happened was that then he uh, adopted a, 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 a different track, which was he emphasized the bodhisattva precepts rather than the monastic um, the rule of, of Vinaya, the monastic rule, and so, and he certainly wasn't the first one. There was there was, there was uh, a couple of, of um, elder you know, people people from a, uh, earlier times that had, had adopted a similar track. So he wasn't the originator of that mode, but it certainly took up a lot of strength from his time. So that the the um, Zen way, as it were. Uh, became built much more around the Bodhisattva precepts and the monastic training because that was um, what Dogen could do because he didn't need to have the stamp of authority to to um, to go that path. So he emphasized the Bodhisattva precepts, played down the monastic thing, and then that became the sort of defining style. And then because of that um, uh, motivation being, you know, the altruistic intent being there sort of in your daily liturgy and everything that you, you know, the way that you relate and talk and making much of that, even though like in Shobogenzo there's you know astonishing degree of detail about what you do and don't do in the monastery. There's a power to what you hold up as your, uh, your kind of defining qualities. You know? So the, the, the Bodhisattva precepts held up above the monastic rule, then that had its effect over centuries. And so then, as one good friend of mine who's also a Zen teacher said, basically the way that they function in, in Soto Zen is... Um, the precept, you know, you're, you're conscious of what the precepts are and they're sort of in the background whilst you go about doing what your uh, intuitive wisdom or your, your, your sensitivity to the moment tells you is the right thing to do. Which, as you say, opens a pretty big gate. Because, uh, you know, coming out, the, that rubric is a pretty, 
of commodious tent. <laughs> you can get a lot of things under that rubric, you know. Like my particular preferences, fears, desires, aversions. It's just, you know, just lazy Buddha, lustful Buddha, angry Buddha, selfish Buddha, proud Buddha, you know, crazy Buddha. And then it's, it becomes almost meaningless. So, um, you know, I'm personally, I, I'm very, uh, I have a lot of respect for, for our Roshi here. <laughs> and a number of others, you know, who uh, I would say it's not sort of a, a, a kind of, by any means, uh, uh, that you know, everybody who's in the Zen tradition or Tibetan tradition is sort of dubious. <laughs> I don't think you meant that, but it's, it's, it's more that the capacity for ignorance to work its effect is astonishing. I mean, it's powerful and extraordinary and terrible stuff. <laughs> and and the, but also another of the things I wanted to to um, to mention in in that regard. Um, uh, well, so you're going to follow. Yeah. I think it's more from use a social expression more from quality control point of view that you know teaches, of course, so much destruction in people's lives. Which, my personal opinion, I think the greatest destruction you can have in a person's life is for someone to leave the path, just to say, to, and, and I've seen people do that mm. for over the years and the years to come back. Yeah, yeah. And, and put quality controls are in place to, to uh, control teachings like that. Well, it's it's really it's interesting that you know, from the very beginning the Buddha is, didn't establish a centralized model but more lets things sink or swim according to their own virtues. And that it's, uh, he, he placed immense trust in common sense of your average human. That we, you know, we, we know when an apple tastes good and when it's gone bad. And that you, gee, wow. You know, and that, uh, so it's, it's a very organic process that people, um, are, we are allowed, to, you know, like a good parent, you lets the kids make their own mistakes and learning from those mistakes. Rather than the, having a sort of Vatican model that dictates, you know, this is right, that's wrong, or the or sort of Quranic model that spells out everything for everybody. So, you know, we, we have the space to make our own mistakes and to learn from it. It's also, the other thing I was going to add, which was kind of interesting, is that they actually one of the koans that they study in, in uh, the, yeah, the, the um, array of, of uh, Zen koans is about... Uh, what's called the, the koan of the fox, where the um, this in particular monastery um, there was um, uh, a uh, an abbot. To cut a long story short, um, there was a, a fox that used to, to hang around the the, uh, the the main temple. He used to come into the Dharma hall and be sort of hang around during the, uh, the ceremonies and the meditations. And then and then one day the fox didn't show up anymore. And then the abbot led out the whole sangha out into the countryside, and they found that this cave and this dead fox lying in it. They said, "We'll bring the fox back to the monastery, and we're going to hold the funeral." All right, Ajahn. What's he doing? It's a dead fox. You know, why are we doing this whole kind of monastic funeral for a fox? And then uh, they finally they, they did the funeral, and they they said, um, "Okay, Ajahn, you know, please." Why do we do this funeral for this fox? You know, it's, it's just a dead animal. You know, we, this is a kind of grand ceremony we do. You normally do for esteemed elders. And he said, "Well, this fox actually used to be the abbot of this monastery many, many years ago, 
and, uh, the, and, and he was called so-and-so at that time. And uh, during that lifetime, when he was asked the question, does an enlightened being receive the results of good and bad karma? He said no. <laughs> and for 500 lifetimes after that, he was reborn as a fox. <laughs> and, and this was life number 500. So this is why he's finally burned off that erroneous karma. And that's, that, that's uh, and I'm sure I'm misquoting it. <laughs> to a sufficient Isn't degree. Isn't it wonderful that, that a Theravada monk can, can quote the, a Zen koan? I love it. I just love it. And so then that's the, 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 the story and that the koan is based around. So right there in the, in the Zen tradition you have, yeah, enlightenment does not exempt you from karmic results. But yet still, there's that thing, well, oh, wow, really? Me too? <laughs> So there's the, the delusion can be so deeply rooted that we somehow feel like it doesn't apply to me or I, I'm somehow outside the law. There's some way I can wiggle this, you know, <laughs> that, that I'm above the law. But, you know, in a way, if there's genuine insight, then uh, we realize we're all above the law. But if we really attune the heart to the law, then every action will be in accordance with, with Dharma, with the Tao. And seeing, may it be so.